Hello and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. This week we're talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. It's a genre-smooshing film from directorial duo Daniels, the exact genres of which are smooshed therein, perhaps even constitute a spoiler? Question mark. Answering that question, and probably several others, with me, Marsh Davis, tonight is Jamie Britton. Hello. And Chris Thurston. Hello. Jamie, what's this film then, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, this movie. Um, I think someone actually on the Discord um, mentioned that it might be an interesting topic, and I, I'd been sort of meaning to see it anyway, so I thought it would be a, a good subject for us to talk about. It is... <laughs> it, I mean, I, I managed to go in with very few expectations. I'd seen the trailer, which had kind of, you know, had kind of dazzled me in its own way, but I didn't really know anything about the movie going in. And then I, I watched it yesterday and I was absolutely blown away by it. I think it's superb. One of the best movies I've seen uh, this year. Um, and yeah, I just thought it would be good food to, to chat about. I don't know what your guys' expectations was about it um, before mm. seeing yeah, likewise. I had no idea really what it was about. I knew it had Michelle Yeoh in it and I had a vague sense of its mood based on posters and, and you know, glimpses of it I had seen. But I really didn't know what genres uh, it was going to combine at all. Um, and it was absolutely delightful. I think that that lack of knowledge going in was was quite key for me in enjoying it the way I did. So we should probably say big spoiler wall coming fairly soon yeah indeed i Pretty yeah I, you. I i went in all, knowing almost nothing i saw it in this uh, so uh it's out on streaming now i believe which is how both of you have seen it is that correct indeed yes. i saw it in the cinema a couple of weeks ago um and um absolutely loved it i actually knew very little i knew i had seen some stills and some posters but i hadn't seen the trailer kind of as soon as i because so, it picked up a lot of buzz when it was released in in the u.s in the way that a lot of A24 movies seem to kind of find their way between territories at their own pace. Um, there was a bit of a delay, but I was lucky to avoid spoilers. And I think more than any other film that we've, or that I've been sort of part of discussing since we've been doing these sorts of lock-ins, this is the one where like, I genuinely don't know what to put before the, put before that barrier. Um, so I appreciate this is going to be a short experience for those of you who are curious about the film, because really all I'd received was people on Twitter saying, some fairly hyperbolic things, I think, you know, like, you know, best film I've ever seen kind of type thing. Mm. Um, but um, that was enough to make me go see it. And I was so glad that I knew almost nothing about it. Uh, I think um, what I will say, um, and I, you know, it's it's um, always, you know, the interesting thing about how I would sell someone on this is it has been a really, really long time since I've been really surprised by a cinema experience like been on you know really been taken along on a roller coaster by a film and sort of that has felt in a way that kind of combines obviously the storytelling aspect and also the cinematic aspect of it in a really long time I think about experiences that I've had there are some experiences that I would have I've had historically that I would compare this to but doing so is one of those spoilers I'm talking about (laughs) So something that, you know, um, it's just been a really long time since I've seen a film and gone like walked out of it being like, yeah, I have very few notes. That was just a fucking great use of my time. Think about things like um, how I felt walking out of uh, 
Mad Max Fury Road, a film this is nothing like, so I feel safe talking about it. <laughs> but walking out with that feeling of like, holy shit, this is going to be something I remember for a really long time, which hasn't just doesn't happen very often at all. I find. Yes, I would. Uh, one of the movies I would compare it to, without a spoiler, uh, in comparison, is uh, Whiplash. I similarly mm. walked out of that movie being like, "Wow, <laughs> oh my gosh!" You know, uh, that was a whole thing that happened there. You know, and it, and it kind of a, <laughs> a, a, a totally unique uh, experience. Um, it's a film that will make you say, "Good lord, films!" And that's the vaguest praise I can give. <laughs> <laughs> what a medium! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would you guys want to blast through the spoiler wall now and give us your sort of general appraisal of the film, spoilers and all? Is that a good idea? We Let's can do, do yeah. I, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know how, how both of you would sort of recommend it to people if there's any additional kind of ammo we can load into that particular thing before we, you know, fully... Well, one thing I, I think... I, one, <laughs> one thing I think I would say is that you know, because of the stuff A24 have done before and because of the way it was marketed and, and things like that, I was expecting perhaps something a bit more experimental or a bit more dreamy or like, you know, something, you know, with less coherence to it. And what I would say is actually it's not that at all. Like could, you could sort of take your mum to this movie, you could take your grandparents even uh, because it's really robust storytelling. I think, and I don't think that's a spoiler to say that. I think it's a more solid and um, human movie than you might think from from some of the materials that that have, have been put out for it. And that's what kind of took me by surprise um, is that it has a real kind of heart to it and, and a real heart and soul. It's not an you know Fury Road is a is an amazing movie, but it is an exercise in muscle and you know cinematic kind of uh, virtuosity. And this is as well, but it, it kind of has a, a different vibe to it too. So yeah, I, I would say that it's it's a very um, well put together movie. It's not an art yeah. house movie, really. Yeah, I agree. Although I also think Fury Road has a lot of heart for a movie about screaming and cars. <laughs> <laughs> But we're not talking about Fury Road. We're talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. I feel like I've got to tear us up for some sort of like wall break here. Boom! Oh, <laughs> <gone>. Wow! <laughs> I, I mean, I, it's slightly spoilery. I can tell you how I pitched it to uh, my friend Tom. I said it's like what if the Matrix Four wasn't an absolute bag of gannets, which I, <laughs> I think is probably an assessment of The Matrix 4, which you don't agree with, but nonetheless. Is that, be- is that because you had to listen to three and a half hours of us getting increasingly <laughs> drunk and incoherent talking about it? <laughs> I will say this. All right, we've broken we've broken through the wall now, and we've said the, the M word I was going to say earlier, all right? And I think one of the really funny and important things to note about this movie is that it is most like seeing The Matrix for the first time of any film I've probably seen in a really long time, uh, that at least to live up to that. And I admire to a huge degree this film's absolute aversion to saying the word Matrix. I think it is an actual act of heroism on their part to just ignore it. Um, I love that for it. Uh, and I also would agree that this is a much easier film to like than um, The Matrix 4. And I don't disagree, Marsh, in some ways. Like I love, I love that film. But it's such an uncomfortable watch at times. And I think the reason we were able to kind of tie ourselves in not to three hours kind of articulating the, the complicated pleasure of that film is like the sort of half 
disaster, half triumph kind of nature of it. Whereas I, I do think this is a much more, despite being a completely bonkers film, a much more consistent achievement, <laughs> to put it that way. Oh yeah, which is which is a kind of crazy thing for it to be because it is just this uh, uh, mishmash of so many different genres. I mean, it, even second to second, it is intentionally quite uh, tonally jarring. That manages to mesh, you know, a persistent lack of self seriousness with what is actually quite a serious and very sincere message, <laughs> which is which is unusual. I mean, I, I recognise that not all of it lands perfectly, and that. Uh, uh, and that I know a lot of critics, uh, at least the more snooty ones, have you know come away from it saying that ultimately it delivers quite a sentimental message. But I found just like the pace of it, the sort of intentional flippancy of it, the particularly the puerility of it, all combines to give it this incredibly sort of giddy energy, which I found very hard to to fault uh, or dislike at all. And and it's weird that that because of that sort of lack of seriousness, it manages to be more serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing that that a movie which has extended sequences of people with hot dogs for fingers is somehow much less silly than the Matrix Resurrections. Well, let me. I, I'd like to start with the sausages. I, well, I know that's, I, that comes some way into the film, but I, mm. like just to to go back to that, like the. The, the, the whole sappiness, perhaps, of, of its overall message or the ending uh, was made just like so much more palatable to me by its juxtaposition with that with that purity. And, and the moment that really unlocked it for me and the entire film, I think, was the introduction of that Sausage Finger universe, which like as, as an idea in itself isn't actually terribly funny to me. But the way it was delivered with like Michelle Yeoh's just surprised and disgust when somebody comes up behind her and gently sort of flops <laughs> the sausage fingers over her shoulder. And then the Bollywood movie on the TV with the lover's wiener fingers being slathered in mustard to catch up. <laughs> and then cutting back to the other universe where Michelle Yeoh suddenly can't open a door and is just like flopping her hands helplessly all over it. I was, at, I was genuinely in tears, like just loads the of tears of laughter. And it just got me. And then once I started laughing, I could barely stop because I was then caught back in this feedback loop with where my partner was looking at me with kind of mild consternation that I was <laughs> like having some sort of medical malfunction. And then, you know, having got to that point of, you know, laughing till I cried, I was just emotionally unlocked at that point. And I was able to accept the film's other sentiment with a lot less cynicism that I might have otherwise normally mustered. Mustered? <laughs> <laughs> oh, tremendous! So I was going to say, because I agree. I mean, the moment with the film, it was very close to the moment that got me in the cinema as well. Like, there was a moment that like broke uh, my friend Will, who I saw it with, uh, and that was a different moment, which I'll get to. The moment that broke me was like the last normal fingered monkey being beaten to death by its sausage fingered yes. companion in that redo of the start of uh, 2001. <laughs> um, but but I do feel like, so something I'm really aware of like 12 minutes into this episode is, I suspect there are going to be some people who followed us through the spoiler wall because they genuinely don't have an intent to see this film and are happy to hear us talk about it. And so I do want to back up a little bit and kind of give them an overview of what what the fuck it is we're talking about when we talk about a sausage universe. Um, <laughs> if that seems reasonable, like not if you're full recap, cause I think that's a bit too much, but like to actually talk about what genre this film is and what story it is telling uh, to the extent that you can kind of summarize it just so that we can 
contextualize those moments a little bit. Um, does that seem fair? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I suppose that, you know, this sort of, it's a, it's a film that starts life as a, I guess, a sort of slice of life comedy, um, about a, uh, a family, uh, a Chinese Canadian family running a laundrette and then quickly becomes a sort of, um, kind of multiverse hopping, uh, in its own way, um, sci-fi action movie, um, in the manner of the matrix in the same manner of someone discovering that reality has far more layers than perhaps they're aware of and they can tap into this and that they themselves have a great destiny. It's very matrix. Um, but what it revolves around is not that conflict necessarily, but it sort of uses that as the stage with which to kind of continually orbit and, and reassess and return to and reframe the central drama of that family in increasingly ludicrous ways. Um, but where the kind of the multiverse hopping conceit is effectively a way to kind of build and build and build the stakes and the silliness of what is ultimately um, a generational conflict, a family conflict and a, and a personal conflict about what one's life is worth and what one should do with one's time. Um, basically it was interesting to see it. Um, the matrix is the huge comparison that it really fits into because so much so that it has a, a kind of uh, in in its kind of initial kind of like um, almost mythical uh, antagonist Joe Brutipaki, a kind of Agent Smith style, you know, um, unstoppable force that can take over bodies, can adopt any kind of multiversal guise it wants in pursuit of its goals that no one can stop. It has a plucky band of rebels from the Ultraverse who use cool chairs to beam special abilities into people's brains with which to fight this force, right? Like all of these things are very, very similar, but all of that is in service of um, that kind of the, the relationships that are established in like the first five minutes of the film, basically in the end. Um, and I thought it was really effective at that because in a way it's refusal to let the universe of the, the, the emotional core of the story gets bigger means that the way in which the actual multiverse gets bigger and bigger and sillier and sillier and more and more surprising over the course of the film. Um, I think that's what uh, helps it retain its humanity. And it's also what makes that stuff feel so fun and kind of, um, I'm trying to think, I don't mean permissible in this context, but it means mm. that like the, the breadth of those kind of multiversal experiences, including the sausage universe are ultimately all part of kind of like the weave of just these people's lives in a way, if that makes sense. And and, if, and how kind of silly and daft and slapstick and gross and, you know, sad and tragic and glamorous and things people's individual lives can be. And it is sentimental, but I don't, I don't rue that about it. And and the, the further comparison I would make, including to the Matrix Resurrections, is that the Matrix is also a super sentimental series and, and ended in that way right the kind of like if anything matrix 4 is just doubling down of like this film's about love you assholes it's not about cool flips and that's why we're not going to do one <laughs> i mean it, I, um, I would yeah. i would agree that it, it is very much um a movie that builds um it has a kind of built-in redundancy to its plot um a sort of built-in redundancy against squiffiness or plot holes or sentimentality actually it's very the the setup of it 
couldn't be more simple, really, in a funny kind of way, in that, as you say, you have a chosen one and a big bad, and, you know, uh, realising that your fate and the fate of the universe are one and the same, and you've got to rescue it and all that sort of stuff. That's all fairly standard. Um, But what it does and the way that the movie is orchestrated and set up and the way that the plot moves through it is all this kind of rather marvellous way of... um, giving the audience permission to have fun with what's going on without worrying about logic too much or worrying about, Mm. um, you know, who's doing what at what time, because actually it's very legible. It's a very clear film in many ways. And what it, and what it does is, is, is give you um, excuses to enjoy it more. And that's what I think is the genius of it sort of above everything else really in that it wants you to have fun it wants you to enjoy how playful it is and it doesn't want you to to sort of feel any anxiety about the concepts that it's introducing because the joy in the movie is inside the sort of moments it's it's a movie about the infinite nature of reality uh, among amongst other things, and it wants you to kind of rejoice in how much it can pack into those spaces, into one moment across many realities. You know, the, the the movie is basically set in one or two locations, really, but it finds well, it's, it, it is more than that. But like primarily, we're in a couple of mm-hmm. places, and it the movie again, it kind of rejoices in finding infinite variation in that, and and inviting the audience in to experience the kind of the joy of of that experience and i think that's really clever it's something i agree and i think something that that plays off that really well is like i love its core mechanic like you know not to use game dev terms too much but like one of its core conceits is in order to kind of leap your brain across the multiverse to access the memories of another version of you who may have been like an expert gymnast or a kung fu fighter or you know great at some skill or another in order to gain access to their memories and skills you just need to do something extremely unlikely um, and the exact nature of the extremely unlikely thing, which almost come across as like game show, like, you know, penalty challenges, basically mm. like um, it almost creates this sort of like icebreaker thing where like initially it's very odd the first time it happens. And then when you get the logic of it, it is almost, I think to the point you're making, Jamie, almost like that kind of permission to have fun thing. Yes. I mean, you don't want to think about it too much either like it's right i mean it's very much there as as a vehicle for uh some great gags there are there are ways in which as a sci-fi conceit it is not consistent actually but uh <laughs> if, you know if you ask that question then you know you're you're denying yourself the the vision of a of a stuntman in slow motion butt slamming his way onto a pint-sized cone of sex rubber <laughs> uh, and why would you deny yourself that image that stuntman also gets thrashed unconscious with a pair of dildos, incidentally. Uh, it's a, a guy called Brian Lee, who I can only imagine from what he signed off on to do in this film is either a tremendously good sport or deeply hated by the filmmakers. And we may never know which. <laughs> There's a moment, because I, th- I think I think it is that thing is like, you know, if you have that anxiety of like, oh, this premise might get a bit weird. The film kind of just screams too late at you. And it's like <laughs> yeah. already off on its way. Like... There's a moment where um, they are uh, trapped in the, um, the the secret sex office of the man who runs the DMV <laughs> and that Michelle Yeoh finds by accessing like the memory of her own life when she was a cleaner of the DMV instead and witnessed him having like a tryst and emerging from his like BDSM cave. Um, 
and she's getting ready to fight all of the kind of assembled kind of uh, agents of Joe Butapaki who are outside waiting for her. And it really is like, there's, it's not the first significant kind of action sequence, but I think it's, it's the first, like, it's the first full, what I would call like Michelle Yeoh kind of like full on amazing bit of fight choreography sequence where she's like fighting with a, a riot shield at one point and doing so while holding a breath because the room is filling with gas. But there's this one shot, which I, which was actually the other moment that killed me, um, where it cuts to like the kind of assembled crowd of, you know, um, uh, like uh, antagonists in this case, waiting to kind of confront her. And in any other film, this is the Matrix moment of like all the guards lining up in the lobby, right? Like guns leveled and, and something's about to happen. Like the starting gun on this action sequence is about to be fired and they all have to then, but it cuts to them doing ev- all of the different, completely different things that each of them is evidently needs to do to access the version of themselves who's good at fighting. And in the, <laughs> yeah. And there's lots of good visual gags in that shot, but in the background of that scene is a man passionately fucking a lamp. And that <laughs> image is completely seared into my brain. <laughs> like, I don't know of that entire scene because I just caught him in the background because you see everyone else and like, I can't even now remember the much more visible silly things that are happening in that scene. All I can remember is lamp humping man. And I just, it like, it, it's it's such a delight in that moment. I think partly because I think to repeat Jamie's phrase, like it is an invitation to have fun. It's also like something I like getting a sense of in films, which is like, this looks like, it looks like a project that was very fun to make as well. Mm. That like, there's a real sense of warmth, not just in the characters and how they relate to one another, but in the production, which is hard to achieve. Like there's a playfulness to the production that I find kind of comforting as a viewer, which is a phenomenon you don't always encounter. Yeah, it's interesting that, it, 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 like you say, it is an invitation to have fun. And yet the beginning of the film is, I found incredibly stressful. Because mm. it, it doesn't begin with this uh, otherworldly conceit. It begins with what is, you know, close to being a kitchen sink drama bureaucracy nightmare in which it really conjures the sense of just being overwhelmed by just a huge number of mundane stress factors, the principle among which is taxes, uh, which is you know, a phrase which should probably come with a, a trigger warning genuinely. Uh, and, <laughs> and like... And then, you know, you're, you're thankful as soon as the destruction of the multiverse hoves into view because everything suddenly becomes a lot yeah. less stressful, which is probably not the way it should work. But honestly, you know, if that's what it takes to get me out of dealing with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, then cool, go for it. Bagel me, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, I think you're it, right. It's, and it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because what the movie then sets out to do is is kind of show you all those elements from different angles you know uh the character played by um uh, uh jamie lee curtis who's the kind of irs inspector from hell we get opportunities to sort of you know and her being the sort of you know personification of uh, impersonal bureaucracy that's out to ruin your life with a tick of a pen you know we get to see her from you know every conceivable angle <laughs> you know it, it, it takes this world and shatters it into pieces through its sort of subjective um you know psychedelic <laughs> dreamscape and and that's just so so joyful to i think again it's a it's another way that the movie sets things up and then knocks them down very um uh, with a really clear idea of of what it's trying to do at, at sort of every given moment the the jokes of the movie i think are a really good way of looking at that because you know some Another movie, they might have a gag in it, and then they kind of that's gone. You know, <laughs> like that was a funny moment. 
let's 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 move on you know let's move on to the next thing but it has a really robust attitude to callbacks and also yeah. setting things off to pay them off later it has so much patience with those things and it's so rewarding like i, I would take in as example one of my favorite elements of the movie which is the uh Rakakuni um character which uh, which I think is is one of my favorite things I've ever seen in a movie that she introduces this as a mangling of obviously Ratatouille and then the moment and then later on in the movie you see she's a teppanyaki chef and in another universe and there's another guy who's really really good and she's jealous of him and then in a further down the line uh, she goes into the kitchen to see a raccoon sitting on his head, controlling his hands. And then the <laughs> raccoon takes control of him and tries to kill her because she's seen too much. <laughs> and that's only like halfway down that particular raccoon arc. It, yeah. it yeah. keeps going and it keeps paying off. And every time that fucking raccoon was on screen, I was just dying. It was just yeah. so, so funny. Um, and it keeps going. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of. It's almost like a you know there's plenty of amazing action in this movie, but I always you know the best action set pieces in movies like the the you know the the dry river scene in Terminator Two, or I think of the scene with the the running sequence in The Incredibles, or they're movies where they they like amp up the tension again and again and again. We're going to bring in more to this, more to this, more to this, and it felt like that with with this movie. And I've never quite experienced something like that where the gags are kind of you know, sort of multiplying themselves by the power of infinity again and again and again. And I just thought that was amazing. <laughs> there's, there's, it is really that sort of like, um, it's a great example, actually, thinking about that and thought of it in these terms of that kind of, um, I'm, I'm usually not given to, to, to laws in these things, but that kind of law of escalation in comedy, right? The kind of one, three, a thousand thing where, it's funny, something's funny the first time, it's funny the third time, and it's funny the nth time where N is just too much, right? Like there's a moment where excess itself becomes funny. I think the Rakakuni thing is a perfect example of that because the first time she mangles the Rakakuni thing, um, when try- she's trying to explain what's happening to her, to her skeptical family, and she says, it's like that film. And if you're me in the cinema at that moment, you're waiting for her to say, The Matrix. <laughs> and she says ratatouille and that's very funny because it's just that's just a very good joke because like well she doesn't say ratatouille but to the point she says raccoonie but she's trying to that's even better she's trying to say ratatouille and she's failing and like making the point that ratatouille and the matrix are kind of the same film is an incredible <laughs> it's an incredible observation um you know i mean like they're not but at the same time that's very that's independently very funny and then when it escalates to the point of, um, you know, and then when you realize later in the film that maybe she said Rakakuni because she's already started contacting her multiversal selves. And so she's forgotten that in that universe, it's called Ratatouille instead. And that she's sort of already <laughs> stepped sideways. Like it re- it's rewarding on the second go. But then that kind of process by which you kind of almost let that one slide for a while, it comes back a few times as Rakakuni and it's funny. And then it escalates to, you know, it's actually Rakakuni. Like you watch the... The first time you see that teppanyaki chef um, who is amazing at it, you can see the raccoon tail hanging out the back of his hat. You don't notice it the first time you watch the film, but there it is. Like, it's it's like it's all right, you know, and it's this sort of building and nesting of it. And the commitment to the bit is, is really extraordinary. And I think it's one of those things that you sort of like, even as the film starts to wrap up and it's in its big ending, the all at once bit, 
you're, you're sort of equally invested in getting at least a sense of closure to this other film you've watched, Rakakuni. Um, <laughs> you know, the sense that you're given a fairly good reliance that they do rescue the raccoon in the end, like which isn't even a B plot at this point. It's like mm. a kind of, you know, Delta plot on some different dimension. <laughs> did you see, literally. incidentally, who voices the raccoon? Did you see who that was? I did not. Randy Newman does the voice of the raccoon. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's amazing Um, (laughs) the fact that all of those jokes climax at the same time and get closure at the same time I mean obviously that's why it's called all at once I guess but I mean it is uh, an incredibly elegant piece of writing to have executed that even you know a third as good as they ended up doing because I like you say, I was invested. I was invested in Rakakuni. I was invested in what happens to those rocks, <laughs> strangely. <laughs> yeah. The bit where the rocks fall off a cliff is genuinely, like, that bit, like, so the, we sit, shift to, like, we're just watching some rocks and some text on the screen for a bit, which started to make me laugh because it's such a, it's such a, like, it's like the film is, it should be a fuck you to the audience in most contexts. And we can talk about things like the fake ending as well and that, like the way, it, the way it literally speaks to cinema audiences at various points. But like, it should be a fuck you, but it's so warm and silly that you're almost end up in this game of chicken with the film. Like, how long are you going to keep this going? Like, how long can you possibly keep two rocks talking to each other in an infinite world when no life never developed going? <laughs> um, and I find that stuff very, very funny. Um you know, and because at that point also the film is like earned my trust that like, okay, you're gonna do whatever the hell you want and I'm just gonna kind of enjoy it. I think it's a very it's a really effective um a really effective thing to to achieve. What I would also say is I think just to kind of something that keeps occurring to me is like I do think some of the moments of genuine sentiment land far more because the film is so exhaustingly strange the rest of the time. Like it's a lovely line. I've seen it quoted a lot, but the line, you know, um, where um, sort of uh, successful businessman Waymond from the from the universe where he and Evelyn don't get together, and she ends up a successful movie star, an action star, um, and he ends up successful, and he says to her, you know. I, I might have liked to just do taxes and laundry with you, which is such a sweet bit of kind of mm. like romantic writing, but it me really landed for me for several reasons. But one of them is like everything outside of the little bubble of their relationship in that moment is so mental that that is actually, you know, it almost tapped into my own nostalgia for the start of the film <laughs> where yeah. I had some sense of which way up was. And um, I think it's a really effective way of like, mm regrounding the movie emotionally by using all of that chaos like sausage fingered dimensions and mm. then and rac- raccoons but then it, it also helps that that section has i mean it's it's a, a nod to uh, in the mood for love i think but it brings with it such a, a clear aesthetic that is so different from the yeah. rest of the film that it immediately roots you in the exact mood that is required to understand those words as uh as the kind of emotional heart of the film. It's yeah. funny It's funny that, um, you know, whenever you're watching basically any Christopher Nolan movie, right, and then the last act of the Christopher Nolan movie, he's always doing that thing where everyone's doing different stuff. Oh, we've all got different things to do and we all need to execute them at the right moment, otherwise the world will end. He does it in every movie and it's never mm. as clever as he thinks it is <laughs> because 
there's always our protagonist who sometimes is literally called that and then um you know a bunch of other people doing stuff oh here's what um tom hiddleston's doing here's what this guy's doing and you never really care about any of those guys they're basically just red shirts right you're basically just waiting for leonardo dicaprio or whatever to do the thing that's going to end the movie which has already been going on far too long right but it's it's astounding in this movie that they have, like, you know, they have that same thing going on, basically. A confluence of different things happening at once, all landing on the same moment. And it is infinitely more thrilling. And you care about every single one of them. You even care about, like, sign-twirling Evelyn. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's just... It's such a it's such a bit of magic to do that to to have so many different moments land um, all at the same time uh, all at once. Uh, you know the fact that the you know case in point the the the, the sausage fingers thing you know it ends up being like this really sensitive yeah. like les- lesbian, lesbian affair. How did they manage to recuperate <laughs> that moment from the, the, the almost outrageous silliness the film could have possibly thrown yeah. the camera to be being... get very good at doing things with your feet like that should be oh the feet is so good the feet is so good that she's playing the piano she's like fleur de lis on the piano with her feet it's just so good Claire de Lune sorry not Claire de Lune. well didn't it also I mean it not only kind oh, of man. I mean it, it completely rehabilitates Jamie Lee Curtis's character yeah I mean, it's, and it's such an important moment for her story and the fact that it it solves so many problems that they get this character on side <laughs> but it's insane to think that they gave that moment to the sausage finger universe <laughs> and yeah it completely works it's so it's, i found it really you know when she when um during one of the sort of uh, spasms that michelle undergoes uh, michelle yo undergoes as she moves between universes she she obviously uh, uh offends uh Deirdre in that in that universe where they have a relationship and Deirdre doesn't understand and breaks down and like the, the you know Jamie Lee Curtis back turned to the camera sobbing un- inconsolably it doesn't matter that she has sausage fingers it's it's incredibly powerful <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the thing that is sort of um because at that moment, it's, it's daring you to kind of push through the visible silliness of it to care, mm. right? And I think that's quite an effective way of connecting you ultimately um, to the characters. Like I think the, the, the Nolan comparison had not occurred to me, and I think it is dead on. Um, because I think in some ways, this is like uh, the film that like Tenet wishes it could have been. Um I don't know if, if, if you both saw Tenet, but I thought Sadly. it was it was it is similar in that it has a sci fi high concept about how the universe works, whose logic it it wants to respect deeply, but then it has no story to tell with that really, outside of a few set pieces that are kind of cool. And I think a part of the reason for that is the the relationships in it are pretty cold and largely symbolic, even though they're supposed to anchor the film. You know, they're supposed to be these sort of anchoring motivations for these various characters. And moments where, you know, tragic, you know, moments of people um, making decisions based on their relationships with one another just simply don't land because you don't give a shit, really. Mm. You know, um, it has some similar logic in some ways alongside, like, I will not allow the universe to be destroyed because my boy lives in the universe or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's where my children live in reality. I I must protect it for that reason. Um, that stuff. Yeah, you're dead right. I mean, and, that film yeah. is, is designed. Uh, I mean, in a way that they are different because I don't think uh, every uh, everything everywhere at once is a science fiction film. Uh, 
even though superficially it shares quite a lot of things with science fiction films like The Matrix or indeed Tenet. But like yeah. Tenet is designed as, you know, I'm sure Nolan thinks that when he came up with it, he's like, oh, I'll create this, you know, intricate clockwork world where you know all, all this stuff fits together and uh, but actually it's just you know it's it's a, a clock of farts it doesn't it doesn't stay together at all <laughs> if you think about it and then once that evaporates then you realize that that cold cold-hearted premise was really the only thing that was interesting about the film and like you say it doesn't have any kind of character or heart whereas this film is just character and heart and it's at every moment it is willing you to forget really or not care about really the consistency or lack of in its science fiction elements well to, to take that analogy a little bit further like i think like I, it's funny this has made me think of a lot recently for other reasons but i think you know i think i think you're right that films like tenet imagine themselves as contraptions right that the you know that all of its pieces should be like watching the the pins in in a safe lock click into place as someone cracks into mm. it, right? Like, and it should all kind of flow according to its logic. And that is a desire that I think runs through a lot of cinema. Um, there's a story that gets thrown around a lot in the sort of the um, kind of story sort of construction circles that I am running in at the moment about the, uh, probably one of the only successful examples of this I can think of, which is Alien, where the kind of the, the creative team's dedication to having a really firm sense of the layout of the ship and where the alien was at any given time and where it could go and the ability for you to hypothetically make a alien's point of view version of that film that follows seamlessly alongside the other one because of its attention to detail and the underlying logic of the thing. That's very impressive, but it's not the reason it's a great yeah. film. And I think this is attraction to, there's an attraction to logic as something that gets us out of the messy business of performance in some ways films as you know as performances even though they're these big collective ones and um my view is is traditionally that all you know storytelling like this is kind of like a magic trick right you then you, there needs to be some logic or some rules that the audience invests in but sometimes it's valid that they're invested in it simply so you can subvert it or go sideways with it and cheating under the tablecloth is valid yeah. I think, right, and, and, and to defend happen. Nolan, I think that the films where he does that are the most successful. I don't think, for example, I mean the um, the Prestige or or Inception yeah. are, are necessarily kind of logically pat, but they have the aesthetic of being complicated <laughs> in the moment mm. that you're watching it, and they carry you through that plot because it has this kind of uh, uh, desire to to confuse and baffle you, and that's quite scintillating and if you think about it too much afterwards perhaps they they fall apart but you're not meant to think about it afterwards you're meant to be in the cinema enjoying it and i think this film also has uh, it shares the success of that by being just so overstimulating and I, I i don't think it has nearly any of the number of problems that tenet does uh, that it needs to cover up but nonetheless anything that is logically inconsistent about it or uh you know, there are some jokes that didn't quite land for me, but they're gone so quickly and you're just bowled along with the, the, the pace of the film and the frenetic speed and the, the, the way it's shot and the, the just sumptuousness, the fact that every frame is film, filled with so many detail elements which are themselves references or jokes. I think this is the, like, because the thing is, I do think it is a contraption, but the thing it reminds me of is, I don't know if you've ever seen those like, YouTube videos of like old blokes who restore those completely bonkers, like, carnival organs you know like <laughs> yeah. the kind of like well it's a sort of like it's a it's a it's a you know pedal organ but at the same time there's all sorts of stops and whistles and weird little sound effects and mm. bells and things that rattle 
and you can watch these old blokes on YouTube just fucking going at it, like just playing every, <laughs> you know, playing this, playing a song, but you know, pumping away at all these things like they're like they're conducting a steam train fast forward, and it's bonkers, and there is, but it's also kind of completely entertaining, and you also end up quite impressed by the fact that these are devices that exist and were kind of created for the most overstimulating mm-hmm. human entertainment that was probably conceivable <laughs> at the time of their conception. You know, like like. Um, musical instruments designed to make children faint, as far as I can tell. <laughs> like, um, but you're right. I mean, the, the contraption yeah. here is is the performance. The the contraption yeah. is not the universe in which this film no. fictionally exists. Well, that's the thing that Christopher Nolan has done, like in like so many of his movies. Right, he gets to the end of his movies, and there's a thing where he goes like, you know, basically the plot says something like, and you know what the real fundamental part of subatomic particle is. That's right, love, or you know, <laughs> the the real palindrome was friendship, or something like that. And it always does it, and it's like, no, Chris, you didn't make that movie. You made a cerebral piece of, you know, um, brushed granite nonsense about nothing. Yeah, and you can't just put a crying Matthew McConaughey at the end of it and hope that we care, and also hope that it fills in the plot holes that you haven't bothered to, you know, address. Um, you know that is not your. He, he pulls it off in the Prestige, which is his best movie, I think, because yeah. the movie is geared around that quite literally. He tries it elsewhere and it doesn't work. Whereas in this film, to compare it, it makes its whole business. Um, every single moment of the movie is about love and relationships and the reality of those things and the realities of family and the realities of the difficulty of those things. It doesn't just tip it in at the end as like you know, as a little bit of, oh, and here's, here's a little bit of emotion to back up, you know, mm. this, this kind of knockabout farce we've had. It, it's, it's made it its business from the start. And that is why it's so successful and why it doesn't, the ending, you know, it, if you've taken out all the, um, all the magic and all the crash bang wallop of this movie and just made a sort of indie film about, you know, a, a sort of slightly depressed family. Yeah, it would seem like a very pat observation to come to at the end, which is, you know, you got to learn to love those you're close to and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. It would seem pat and oversimplistic, but it doesn't because it doesn't, because that's not the film they've made. They've, yeah. they've, they've filled every moment of the film with with nuance in its, in its own kind of weirdo way. Um, and... You know, I, I've read a few of those reviews, which sort of Pete Bradshaw and The Guardian apparently completely missing the point of the movie entirely, I think, <laughs> um, by kind of seeing it as being simplistic. But I don't think it is at all, really. It's the moment when you realise the man on the playing the batshit Wurlitzer is actually playing Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 And the raccoon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he has an identical twin. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we haven't talked much in talking about kind of what the film is and kind of orbiting the the characters themselves. We haven't actually talked very much about the characters. Like I think only like sort of I realized saying it like a few minutes ago when I was talking about it that like saying um, Evelyn and Wayman as the main characters. Like we hadn't really talked about it in those. Terms. So I'm interested to know from from both of you, like, um, what characters, like, did you find did you find the characterization successful? Because obviously, all of the actors in that film have the challenge of 
stretching the characterization of those people across the most bizarre reworks of those characters you can imagine, right? Particularly Stephanie Shu as Joy. Like, and so I'm interested to, if that worked for you, if you end up with a consistent sense of the characters or if, if it was more about their kind of emblematic role in the film. Well, I felt like Jubu Tupaki was something of a stand-in for, uh, you know, um, not necessarily even generationally linked to the Zuma generation, generation, but just uh, nihilism, basically. And it is easy to be nihilistic in uh, the face of a life where all the decisions and all the choices have gone poorly for you as many people feel they mm. have. And there is a, a suggestion in the film that we are living in the worst universe. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't... Th- I loved in her, um, I loved in her, just a side note, I loved in her costume design well, that she looked like she'd been dragged backwards and unconscious through like Comic-Con. <laughs> that was yeah. kind of her look. Well, I think that's, that is exactly what I was going to say is that her, her costume design is one of the things that sort of hangs a lampshade on the idea that she is... Uh, not really so much for a person at those moments, but, uh, you know, a, a concept, a force of nihilism. Uh, you can't take her seriously as like a, an, a well-rounded individual when she has like giant teddy bear shoulder pads. <laughs> but she she looks so amazing <laughs> as well. Every yeah. point. God, I wish I, I could wear a single thing that would look at like a 10% as good as she does in her costumes. I mean, you could give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think the key to it is that you know um, is that she's sort of styling out quite literally this like deeply traumatic awareness that makes someone very lonely, mm. right? To be aware of the sort of there being too much in the universe and being the only person aware of all of it all of the time. Um, and like that, it does feel generational, right? Like there, to the to the extent that the film has like, you know, I think it, it resists pat messages, you know, necessarily as much as it just kind of wants to orbit this family. Um, it's interesting to me. I saw, a, I can't remember who said it on Twitter, but I, I, I thought it was funny. Someone said that it feels like all the millennials are growing up and making films where parents apologize. <laughs> and um, I saw this and I, and I don't think that's far off the mark, actually, like thinking about films I've seen recently, like, and um and the, there is a lot in this genre about the experience of young people being utterly overwhelming, right? And if you're going to pull a metaphor from from Joe Butapaki or Joy, um, I think every aspect of that tilts towards, um, and to the extent as well that like um, the the multiversal awareness is expressed as almost like genre literacy or kind of like film literacy in some ways, Rakakuni. Um, she is someone who has grown up utterly overstimulated. You know, we've already described this as an overstimulating film, but when she kind of reintroduces herself, it is this sort of revolt of someone young, right? Like in, in the way she expresses herself, the pseudonym that she's given herself, um, the ways in which she explicitly tries to shock her mum. There's this half of it, which feels like a kind of coming out and another half that feels like a rebellion and, I find that kind of it is affecting, mm. and and I think I think the kind of the reconciliation of that is hard one enough to feel earned. Oh yeah, because yeah. N- you know not notions of like generational kind of understanding or forgiveness can be quite hard to swallow. And I am particularly like I tend to really dislike it when films treat that reconciliation as an inevitability. Though the 
stories of young people kind of feeling let down by their parents need to necessarily end in them realizing that, well, they did love you the whole time and that being enough. And I think the film actually does a really good job for all of its silliness and for all of the kind of like, um, you know, the there is a kind of cosmic silliness to Joe Butupaki in the Everything Bagel, mm. right? Like that her, you know, I'm, I'm not hanging a lampshade on it. it. You know, she's trying to, like the, the point of that is not that she's trying to destroy the universe. She's trying to kill herself. She's trying to end herself, right? As someone who is overwhelmed by the universe. And, and she's trying to get her mother sort of, to see it as well. Yeah. And to, and to be there with her. Right. It's, it's, it's really like quite heart wrenching at, at its core, what she's trying to do and the silliness of its presentation kind of dares you to dismiss it. And I, I think, and then almost like welcomes you to kind of see it differently. And I think the, the, the pulling her, the, the, I really like the way the film juxtaposes several different moments of a family awkwardly acknowledging one another's feelings. Like in the, in the timeline where the, the kind of the party and the laundrette goes ahead and the laundromat goes ahead and, and it sort of breaks down in that awkward, horrible way that sort of families pushed to a kind of emotional breaking point do. There's some shouting and some glass gets broken, but it doesn't really go much further than that. And then the juxtaposition of that with the kind of stairway fight slash sort of reconciliation sequence that ends with like um, <laughs> granddad's mech <laughs> helping <laughs> pull, um, you know, pull joy out of the huge bagel she's created to destroy herself. Like that, those things sort of being kind of, you know, I get that people think it's sentimental, but for me, I think the kind of the layering of those things is quite, quite moving because what it expresses is all that kind of overstimulation is ultimately navigable and that it is not over, you know it is not too much um well it's funny it that promises that, to be that moment comes directly after this kind of the most literal interpretation of fighting <laughs> fighting something with love that i've ever seen where michelle yo fights her way up that staircase towards the bagel um, using her kind of now entirely unlocked powers to sort of lovingly solve the people she's fighting problems. Mm. Um, so she corrects one guy's like back problems. Uh, she um, she sprays that guy with the perfume that his wife used to wear. Spanks another dude. <laughs> the, she spanks that guy, which is just incredible <laughs> as well. Um, and it's 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 so clever because what you're about to see is the literal version of it. Um, and he's given us like this symbolic sort of uh, take on that idea first. Um, and this is all towards yet another symbol, but it's the more kind of real, you know, we're, we're also seeing at the same moment a much more humane kind of interpretation of saving someone with love. And so again, the movie gives you so many ways to kind of Take a take a seat and enjoy something before you get, think about it too much, and 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 makes it silly, but also makes it serious all at once, <laughs> um, so that any of any well, I said this earlier, but any of that squiffiness that you might feel or ickiness that you might feel with a scene like that is has been obliterated from your brain with joy. <laughs> mm. I don't I don't know I didn't feel particularly bad about this while I was watching it but I do think maybe in retrospect that Becky is sort of shortchanged in the film. Like she seems like it's quite a key part of rehabilitating Joy is to tell her that she is loved and you know to get her to recognize 
that not only does her mother love her, but she has her like specifically her own Waymond analog in Becky, like the somebody who will you know be with her and, and heal her. Uh, but we don't really get any kind of Becky time on screen apart from a, a, a few snippets of dialogue here and there. And obviously they're a cute couple, but um, you, you, it doesn't necessarily sell it that, that what they have is a universe saving level of love and kindness between them. How did you guys feel? I think you're right. And it's interesting to me that like, given that I described like Joe Brutupaki as this sort of like, you know, uh, both a coming out kind of, kind of character and a, and a rebellious character that I actually in that, in saying that kind of forgot to make the link to the fact that at the beginning of the film, that's what Joy's, um, Joy's request of her mother is to kind of, you know, support her in coming out to her grandfather. Mm. Right. And that then what that kind of gives way to is this kind of like, you know, like multiversal supernatural expression of that desire. But I agree with you that Becky's part in that is is quite thin, actually. I think it's interesting that, you know, the film kind of orbits the fact that Waymond and Evelyn will kind of orbit one another in different universes to some extent, or their paths kind of constantly converge. The same is not necessarily true for Becky as a kind of as her as a counterforce in her own way to Joe Brutubeck, mm. right? The relationship that matters there is Joy and her mother, and I think that's. I think it, I don't know. I don't have an answer to it necessarily. I think you, I think you're right to call that out as a kind of a gap in the film in some ways. Yes, I mean the, the movie locates Joy's trauma in various ways as being an uh, you know an extension of of Evelyn's parenting. And I think that's probably why they focus in on that, you know, because she's in the initial reality, she's annihilated her mind by experimenting on her, which is uh, very funny. We've all got parents, haven't we? <laughs> but, <laughs> We're uh, all given the internet too young. That's yeah, we've absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that is what it is, right? Like, the, you yeah. know, um, you know, it is to like, it is that Bo Burnham song, the movie, to some extent. Um <laughs> Yeah, and it is funny as well that obviously it does establish that Evelyn herself in a in another universe might might also herself be gay. It's just in the sausage universe. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should talk about um, some of the other uh, some of the uh, performances mm. in this. I mean, yeah. for me, uh, I think you know Michelle Yeoh is absolutely incredible in in this movie, just in about every single direction. You know, things are thrown at her quite literally um non-stop and the the sort of sense of i don't know she never makes an obvious choice in her performance it always seems realistic it grounds you in this insane world that's that's kind of happening it never feels like it never feels like she becomes a different character even while she is you know quite literally becoming different versions of herself and i think that is an extraordinary thing to pull off that while she's doing all this incredible kung fu um and audacious kind of stunts and stuff like that she still feels exactly like the same character you meet in the opening shot of the movie Mm. you know miserable and pulled in too many directions at once i mean the film is gives the opportunity for all these actors to show off their incredible versatility uh and I already know that Michelle Yeoh was a great, great actor, but just seeing her switch between these different kind of modes is quite, quite astounding. Especially when you know, I'd, I'd watch an entire film uh, of the "In the Mood for Love" pastiche. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see more yeah. smouldering Michelle Yeoh uh, and smouldering Ki Hui Kwan as well, who is 
as like as Waymond is just incredible. Like he, I, I hope this reestablishes him as like a major actor because he does so many different things in this film uh, and seems completely suited to each of them. Like in his role as, uh, as a beta Waymond in in the, in the kind of original <laughs> universe, he, you could not imagine in him. Uh, wearing a uh, black tie and pulling it off. And yet suddenly, you know, we're in this other universe where he is just the most charismatic man smoking on, on a rain-swept street. Which is an absolute smoke show as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah, I think he's great. Like, I feel like we kind of talked a lot about talking about how, like, because he carries the burden of kind of introducing the high concept of the film in a lot of different ways, right? Like, his is the first transformation when he switches to Alpha Waymond. Um, and like, I think he also does an incredible job of like, that jump is not as extreme as it might be because ultimately the, 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 you know, the film, because of the reasons we already discussed, the film does a nice job of keeping the multiverse stuff kind of silly, right? The technology is kind of silly. The setup is kind of silly and Alpha Waymond is kind of silly, but like this, um, there's such a nicely observed kind of shift from, you know what a kind of messy is as as you know peter waymond to being like that transition to cool waymond is really beautifully done i think because it's not this total personality shift it's just a few degrees into driven mm. um really more, he, more, he's more still so fighting with confidence. a bum bag he's still fighting yeah. with a bum bag even though <laughs> <laughs> right yeah the bit where he's trying to give himself a paper cut was agonizing. Oh, <laughs> 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 Horrible. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he deserves a, an, an entire career renaissance from this. And if he doesn't get one, it's absolutely um, criminal. Uh, what a, what an amazing performance uh, he is. Yeah. You know, that in many ways, I mean, this isn't quite right, but he's kind of the heart of the movie, you know. Um, oh, yeah. I think he is, yeah. Uh, yeah, but he probably oh, yeah, is. Yeah. He probably is, in fact. And that is kindness as the way to solve conflict is is literally what what uh, fixes everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. Bear in mind, it is. It is ultimately like. I mean, I, it's it's funny to see like several different in, in in recent pop cinema, several different references to like a third eye opening, and mm. as a kind of metaphor for enlightenment. And um, I love the fact that in this movie. Um, the third eye that opens for Evelyn is his, quite literally. You know, that <laughs> right, kind of the googly converge. eye. Yeah, the googly eye. But it is, she pops in the middle of her forehead, right? Her third well, that, eye opens. And that's, that segues exactly from a direct reference to the Matrix, where all the bullets stop yeah. in front of her, and she just plucks one out, and it becomes the googly eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, um, I thought James Hong was great as well. I think he always is. Yeah. But um, oh, I, I love James Hong. What a treat to get him to seeing like him wearing a mech suit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just, I mean, I, I think probably like all of us, he is just someone who, whenever he turns up in movies, and he's been in a lot of movies. Ninety three, oh, yeah. he's been in movies for a long time. Whenever he turns up, he's always a welcome. Uh, and always side. been the same age, it seems. Always been the same age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, fantastic. I've just noticed that Jamie Lee Curtis's character is called Deirdre Bo Beardry. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent name. <laughs> I mean, and, and she's she's another one. I mean, like I've watched, mm. I've been, I've, I've watched at least one and a half of those new Halloween movies, right? 
and they are wank. They are really, really bad. And she's not bad in them, but it's just a completely unforgiving part for her to play like Laurie Strode, mm. you know, like alt-right survivalist Laurie Strode. And it's just like, oh, I mean, she's not those things, but that's kind of the vibe of her. And like to see her in this, like, oh my God, it's so fun to see her like playing this like grotesque from every single angle and then like finding the beauty within that grotesque and just like really throwing herself into this crazy ass part, you know? And I think it's, yeah, I was really, uh, I was really surprised with how, how much she does with it. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah. She's a really, it's a brilliant villain uh, without really ever being a villain. Like in the earliest scenes with her, she does something against her own better judgment and gives them till the end of the day to get the the proper return in. You know, she does something nice, which is a real bit of, sort of rule breaking on the part of the movie. I think it like, it, it undercuts itself. I think most movies would want her to be this kind of beast who is eventually slain. Um, but they do that like pretty much straight away. And then after that, they just embrace the weirdness of her and what the sort of, all the all the uh, weird and wonderful things they can get her to do, which I just think is very very brave and clever. I really like, um, you know, she's the first character in the film to kind of draw the donut. You know, when she circles the part oh, yeah. of the oh tax god, yeah, I hadn't noticed that. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, and and that sort of the repeated. That's if and it's something I just realised is that's obviously the repeated the the big, you know, black everything donut of of darkness is the kind of the repeated metaphor for that kind of nihilism despair and i've just realized that it's the inverted googly eye yeah (laughs) oh yeah that's very good i was like huh that's a surprisingly consistent set of metaphors raccoon film (laughs) Um, (laughs) we could talk a bit about the structure of the film a little bit it's interesting i think because it has a couple of obviously it has a uh a sort of main structuring device which is is divided into parts of uneven length right everything everywhere and all at once and then on top of that it has several moments where it sort of almost like resets the stakes or has another go at kind of telling the story um specifically orbiting the moment where it basically fakes an ending um and then zooms out to reveal a cinema, which is one of the universes, and builds out from there towards a kind of a different ending. And it's kind of that sort of um, structural playfulness, I think for me at least, sits on top of the rest of the film's playfulness is something we haven't really dug into. I don't know if it kind of, if either of you have a thought on how that changes the kind of the journey of this story for the audience. Cause I still agree with you, Jamie, that it's quite a simple story at its heart, but those are moments where it does seem to explicitly and almost like, you know, textually tell you we're starting again now. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it, it, it's all texture. I mean, like, like you say that the, the, the structure is a basic three act hero's journey, but what it does is it is, is, is that's the kind of base of it. And, and then on top of that, it's all scribbles. <laughs> um, and as long as it's traveling in the right direction, it doesn't worry too much um, about an act structure. So it gives mm. you the kind of illusion of, of a kind of dream logic, recursive um, uh, kind of plot, uh, you know, uh, without actually doing that, which is which is what yeah. they all do. I mean, if they talk about um, Rick and Morty, uh, the, the filmmakers have talked about like, 
this this has been just dating for them since like 2010 and they talk about seeing Rick and Morty and kind of while well, they were thinking about this movie and thinking oh fuck that's that done we can't do that can't do this now and similarly with Spider into the Spider-Verse mm-hmm. um, and I would say that those are both properties um, that make huge successes out of basically fudging complexity plot complexity they they actually do things incredibly simply but they give the illusion of, of massive complexity which in storytelling terms there's no difference really like if it seems like complexity then it is complexity you know but i think the the fact that they and and the key to unlock all that is character if you can have a, a character who is going on a legible story journey throughout then it doesn't really matter you can do anything um and that's that's why i think michelle yao is is so key to it but also that you know, at no point in the movie was I confused as to where she was at, like at what point yeah. in her journey she was on. And that would have ruined it, I think. I remember playing the video game Crisis 2. I think it was Crisis 2, right? Where you're a man okay. in a suit and you're going around New York City and things happen to your suit which change the plot. It changed the nature of the being you are in that game. And they also are important for plot things and there's lots of like transcendental moments where you're picked up by a beam of light and shown the face of god and stuff like that and i remember after two of those you don't know oh which one which one of those was the important one because they both felt quite significant um (laughs) but actually i don't know what this means for anything and although it may be a weird comparison to to make between crisis two and this um there's a several moments of transcendental flip out in this movie yet somehow I was able to track all of them and not feel anxious that I didn't know what was going on. I think you're right. Cause like that kind of zoom out to reveal that the ending was actually the ending of the film in a film. And therefore we'll continue with the film is grounded in the fact that after that reveal and the kind of playfulness of that, the next thing you see is Evelyn is Michelle Yeoh's face. And just in the, and this is testament to her performance, just in the way she is looking at the screen, it tells you that we have followed our Evelyn's perspective here, right? That we haven't left her behind. And that is such a, like that I think is to to what you're saying. It's the kind of, despite it being a film that's defined by being split over so many different universes and perspectives, you are kind of following one consistent performance throughout, which is a remarkable trick to pull off. But as I think we've said a couple of times, it leans entirely on that performance. It shares a cinematographer with the Spider-Verse as well, incidentally. I don't know if that's important in any way. <laughs> He's obviously a very good cinematographer. There's, I, I think what, what you're talking about there is also mirrored in the complexity, but also clarity of, of the way it's shot. Yeah. And everything's always kind of very kind of plainly presented in a way, but also it's, it's incredibly intricate, the things that are, that are on screen. Lots of delicious sort of pivots as well and movement within the camera, but it's, it's all there which in, in a way which accentuates what you're meant to be feeling rather than obstructs or confuses. It's very distinctive visual style altogether, I think, actually. Like, mm. there, uh, you know, for an inverted commas sci-fi film, obviously there are, like, special effects and CG which are designed to, you know, f- feel authentic in up to, a, up to a sci-fi point. But also there's a lot of, like, effect work and prop work, which is very, very kind of intentionally stagey like almost evoking like a handcrafted feel like the mm. those led covered headsets in the alpha universe or, or gong gong's mecha wheelchair you know they or, the, or rakakuni himself a puppet. indeed yeah like very <laughs> obviously not a great puppet like they are great goofy props um, and I, I think that's sort of like i think that 
amongst other things, is a sort of distancing technique to prevent the audience sort of getting too wrapped up in like the seriousness of the sci-fi conceit. It's like saying, no, don't don't worry too much about how this hangs together. There's an animatronic raccoon, so chill. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, there's that graphic novel, which I just realized shares some some sort of DNA with this. It's by... It's it's by the guy who did the Invisibles. I've forgotten his name off the top of my Grant head. Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison's The Filth, which is similarly about an ordinary kind of or sort of miserable old person who learns that he is in fact the member of a sort of interdimensional, you know, um, detective uh, agency who needs to go and fight like giant sperm monsters in true kind of Grant Morrison style. But it like it plays a it plays across that aspect of like the idea of of misery leading you to sort of believe that you are the chosen one and it and it, and in Grant Morrison's version it, it goes towards nihilism right it goes towards this idea that you if you lose yourself in infinity then you're 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 basically you know insane and you and you're you're gone forever whereas this movie obviously goes in completely the opposite direction um but it just it just struck me that like with what you were saying there, Marsh, that the the way that the world is pictured and the way that the world is presented, there's a there's a friendliness to it and there's an artificiality to it which stops which is one of the things that stops that from happening, I think. That mm. stops it from being a, a movie about losing yourself and, and makes it a movie about you know finding yourself without wanting to be too pat about it. But can I tell the story of the extremely odd reality experience I had while watching the film Everything Everywhere All at Once in the cinema? I think you should. So this was maybe a little bit too far in terms of like cinema 4D, you know, first few rows might get wet type cinema experiences where the film comes to life. But me and my pal Will went to see the cinema, went to see it at the the posh local cinema with sofas. We sat down on our sofa to watch the film and realized that sat behind us and slightly to the left were two people we knew from back in the future days. By the way, back in the future, back to the future days, back, back when we worked at Future Publishing. And we turned around to say hello to them. Uh, and did so um waved and and but you know film was starting so it wasn't much more than that and then uh, we watched the film and at the end of the film um i heard someone behind me say hey chris but it the voice didn't sound like either of those two people and i turned around and realized that sat behind them and slightly to the left were two other people i knew and that at the beginning of the film a kind of like kind of um, sort of strange recursive social event had occurred that I wasn't aware of at the time where I had turned around to wave briefly at the person sat directly behind me <laughs> and in the process indirectly waved at someone sat behind them who does actually know me but I didn't see them at the time and so and then after because you know we sat in the because we, we'd been sat watching the kind of the credits for a little bit letting the film kind of wash over us the people that we knew had left silently leaving a gap where that kind of first connection could be actually formally made at the end of the movie it's only one of the weirdest like kind of unpickings <laughs> where that person said to me like i thought you saw me at the start of the film you waved and i was like i wasn't waving at you i was waving at the person directly in front of you who i also knew <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and then um while sat outside a pub after the film um talking about the film and trying to articulate to my friend why this was so weird someone else i knew who knows that third person zoomed past on a scooter and waved at the exact moment i was talking about (laughs) just so you know reality is collapsing that was like at midnight why was he on a scooter i still don't know waved with his giant sausage fingers (laughs) (laughs) it was good i thoroughly recommend it. it you know it's a bit like um 
uh, I went to see Top Gun Maverick with my mum a few weeks ago. <laughs> and um, if you want the real 4D cinema experience with that, just go and see that film in a cinema full of people in sort of army adjacent, army town adjacent Salisbury, where it's just a sea of dads whom love the jet plane and my mother who loves jet planes more than anything going every time a plane is loud which is all the time (laughs) (laughs) does sound like the ideal experience i'll have to i'll have to hit your mum up for a for a (laughs) ticket when i'm back in england yeah Yeah, she'd go see it again in a heartbeat i think loved it (laughs) It is. It is the sign of a of a of a great movie when you you bring it out of the cinema with you, uh, yeah. and, and into the world. I mean, apparently for you, Chris, that worked sort of backwards in time as well. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it, reality it had, bent around. Yes, yeah. it had to to make it work. Yeah. So, but I think you know, I, I don't think I think it would have been impossible to walk out of everything everywhere all at once and not carry it with you. It's it's so relentlessly joyful. Um, you know, top to bottom, that you know, it just kind of, I don't know. It's the, the joy is really the point because I was, I was kind of trying to get it when I was right at the beginning of this when I was saying that like I haven't had the experience of walking out of the cinema with that feeling for such a long time. Where it's like, it's obviously not a perfect film, but it's like that was really special, and I feel great having seen it. You know, there are lots of films I've seen recently that I've really enjoyed, like The Green Knight, um, like um, you know, a couple of years ago, The Lighthouse and Parasite, where I've walked out thinking, God, that a really really good time with that but haven't felt kind of buoyed by it in the way that I felt buoyed by this film coming out of it. Like, like I'd entered into a really fun conversation with the filmmakers. Whereas like coming out of the lighthouse, for example, I was like, I came out feeling like I had um, definitely watched a man wank a seagull to death or whatever just happens in that film <laughs> and i was like that was stirring <laughs> but i'm not sure i'm like i'm not sure that i've been moved <laughs> i mean i don't I, I think i agree uh not so much about the wanking um uh but i think i don't think i'm gonna see it again though i think this might be mm. the very the one and only time i see it because um I don't know. I, I, I've, I've never seen Whiplash again. That was, you know, one of the best experiences I've ever had in a cinema seeing that movie. It completely blew my mind. And I feel like to go back to it would just detract from that, so I'm not going to. And I think I might feel the same about this movie. I think I might be done with it. Because the the mo- the time I spent with it was so wonderful um, that it feels like anything to go back to it would be to dilute it. Mm. I think I think I'm I hmm, I I'm not sure I feel somewhat similarly, but I think I would go back to it in order to uh, go through it frame by frame because <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's you know there's moments where Evelyn sort of mega jumps between fifty or a hundred universes uh, in, in rapid succession, and I bet every single one of those frames has a gag in it, <laughs> and I'd like to freeze frame and frame advance and sort of sop up all the details because there's so there's so much that's just in the background of this film which is i wanted to see uh, all those faces as well you know where where you see all the sort of portraits of her Mm. flashing forwards yes uh that was a wonderful sequence and it kept going as well to the point where you're going like oh my god the work that went into just this (laughs) this 30 seconds is extraordinary i would i think i would see it again with someone who hadn't seen it Mm. like i would really like to have the vicarious experience experience of watching someone else go through it for the first time you know um i agree kind of with jamie like i'm not because like, I, I did think it was a pretty long film that was maybe like you know it does it does take it, it felt longer than maybe it was um to me at least the first time I'd be curious to see if that was the effect round two but 
yeah, I would love to, you know, I really, I get a lot out of people's vicarious, like people's enjoyment of things in the cinema. It's why I like seeing films in the cinema. And so, um, you know, it's the same, you know, logic by like, if a new Marvel film's out, if I'm going to see it in the cinema, I'd like to see it like night one in the Odeon when all the teenagers who are obsessed with it are there. Cause that's the most fun time to see those films. And yeah. I think this was, you know, the thing that made this for me was like me dying along with the last normal fingered monkey and, <laughs> and, and my friend being completely destroyed by Rakakuni when that was happened. Oh, it was Rakakuni that got your friend. Yeah. Yeah. It was Rakakuni that got him. Um, <laughs> um, I was also got by, by lamp fucker as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. See, the that's dudes. the freeze frame that I need to go back and uh, properly explore. Yeah, it's great. The it's great. I mean, I, I really have described every aspect of it, to be honest, but like, <laughs> it's there. The dude's trying to butt slam the, you know, because... The butt plugs, yeah. The butt plugs, because they're, they're her awards, aren't they? And they, she says mm. they don't give these out for nothing. And I remember looking at those awards and I went, oh, that's a I butt said, plug. that's a butt plug. That's going to come back later. And so I couldn't have predicted how it, <laughs> it's just <laughs> extraordinary. Um, it's like it was like uh, you know, like when a dog's trying to get a, a, like persistently trying to get a crisp, and you, <laughs> that's like the eagerness with that guy trying to get that thing on his ass was just, it's just so good. Um. <laughs> and then there's another guy who stuck something else up his ass. So what has he stuck up there? Is it a bong or something like it's that? Like a, it's like a golf trophy or something. I can't remember exactly. What it is. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. There's a bit where um, uh, another bit in the film, that an early bit of the film that got me is, and I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this right, um, the bum bag fight, as the bum bag fight escalates, which is the first like real action sequence in the film, I think, when Alpha, Alpha Waymond kind of kicks the shit out of the DMV security guards with his, or the, sorry, the IRS office um, security guards with a bum bag. There's a moment in it where they kind of they're starting to get their ass kicked by him, and one of them gets like you know twatted in the face by the bum bag, and you just hear one of the other ones say under his breath, "Oh no, Chris," <laughs> <laughs> and then get a bum bag in the face and go "fuck," and it's very it's just it's it's that little yeah just little detail, but it, it made me chortle. I think stuff like that's why you watch it again. There's a good moment as well when their sort of powers drop away from them and they just have a kind of slap fight with each other. Uh, when when her and the guy she's fighting sort of suddenly lose their their powers and they're just sort of you know like two two kids in a playground. It's very funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that was is that everything? I think that's everything. Everything is over now. What's left? Just the outro. Shall I do the outro? I guess you can tweet us at Creighton Crowbar. You can listen to these recordings on YouTube, where you can find other stuff by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers on Patreon who do not pay for these lock-ins. They only pay for the fortnightly games podcast. But you can back us too anyway at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. Or you can just join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. That's everything. I've been Nosh Davis. I've been Jamie Britton. I've been Chris Lesson. Thanks, Thanks for listening, listening everybody. everybody.